0: This is Holding Court with Patrick McEnroe. Now, here's Patrick McEnroe. All right, time for another edition of Holding Court, everyone. Patrick McEnroe here, and uh, I've been chasing this woman down for a long time. I, I want it to be said here, Savannah Guthrie, that I was asking you to be on my podcast even before your interview with President Trump in the town hall. Isn't that correct?
1: It is correct. I've been stalking you since long before since I'm a huge tennis fan. Well,
0: that's how that's that was the impetus of my interest. Of course, you have an unbelievable background in your world which I want to ask you about as well, but uh, a mutual friend of ours, Brian Koppelman, of course, who's a great writer of the of the TV show Billions. He was one of my first guests, Savannah, because years ago, before podcasting was a thing, you know, now it's like everybody has a podcast, right? I went and actually met with Brian, I don't know, five, six years ago um, to get his advice because it was something I wanted to do at some point and, and I really respected what he was doing. So long story short... During this year's U.S. Open, which was played here in New York City with no fans, he sends me a text at one point. He's watching, oh, by the way, I'm watching the U.S. Open with Savannah Guthrie. She's a huge fan. <laughs>
1: True fact. Appreciate that he didn't say a big tennis stalker. But, um, yeah, well, you know, Brian, of course, is um, he, he created Billions, as you mentioned. He also did an awesome documentary at 30 to 30 on ESPN yes. about the Jimmy Connors um, US Open early 90s. Mm-hmm. I can't even remember who he played. But anyway, that was an amazing. Do you remember
0: that one? Uh, well, let me tell you, let me fill you in a little bit on that, Savannah. Do L- you want to know who he played in the first round? Who was up two sets Please to don't love? tell me who, who, who? Two, two sets to love, love three, love 40 on Connors' serve. That would be <laughs> yours truly.
1: <laughs> oh, oh So you do have a memory of that? Um,
0: could, a memory would be one way to describe it. Um, a nightmare <laughs> might be the other. But anyway, I was in—I was in that documentary, and that's how I met Brian. Face to face, he actually grew up with my wife in uh, Long Island, so their families were close. And my wife, Melissa Erico, she's a singer and a, a, a been on Broadway many, many times. But their families knew each other, so he reached out to me via my wife because I had this big lead on Connors. I can't believe I'm in two and a half minutes into my podcast with you, and you're bringing up my match with Jimmy Connors. I did not expect I know, but, that.
1: But it's meant to- meant to be though because i'm a fan I, I, but i didn't know i forgot that that was your match i just remembered loving that documentary so much
0: well it was my was in the first round there were a couple others including the one against aaron krikstein which went to a fifth set tie break but that's a that's oh. another story so i know you're a big tennis fan um and i know i i watched your interview with ellen when you discussed um your match <laughs> with roger Federer. Uh, and Bill, Bill Gates and Jack sock. And, and I, yes. I, I have to say, I was pretty impressed watching you practice during the Olympics in Seoul in Korea while you were on a <laughs> Oh
1: my gosh. I took it so seriously. So, um, well, I, I, I'm, I know it's not very original, but I'm a big fan of Rogers and I, he, I sort of just idolized him from afar, but of course I had never met him. I'd never interviewed him. And then, um, his agent, but I would talk about it and they're always teasing me about it on the show. So his agent called me in early, I guess it would have been 2018 because the Olympics were on, the Winter Olympics, and said, Do you want to play in this celebrity match with Roger, Bill Gates, and Jack Sock? Mm-hmm. And I was like, At first I said, No. I mean, I can't play tennis. I'm terrible. Plus I'm a choker, which I was hoping we could get into my tennis psychology a little later, but I was like, this is, I want you so bad, but I, it just, I'm, I'll be horrible. It'll be humiliating anyway. So I kind of was not sure. And then my friends basically were like, How could you, Roger Federer is your idol. You don't care about any of the famous people you've met. Like, this is the one. How are you going to pass up your (laughs) chance to meet him and play tennis with him? So I did, but at that point I got obsessive and I had to practice, including on a clay court in South Korea during the Olympics. Because it was right in March, right after the Olympics.
0: Right, that was impressive footage, I must say, because it looked like it was like a little barn, but they had this red clay court. It it must have been fake red clay, but I was very impressed with... uh, the way you handle that, and you know, I, I watched. I kind of broke down your forehand for you. It's kind of a long. You're a lefty, so your left hand's so <laughs> kind, yes. kind of a long swing. I think we could shorten it up a little bit so we get your contact. So listen, I'm available for a lesson anytime. Now that you've done my podcast, you can have as many free lessons as you want. By the way, Savannah, for Don't you. Don't even say yeah. it
1: because I'll <laughs> call you. Don't think I won't.
0: Well, listen, that was fine. I'm hopeless
1: though. My tennis is hopeless. It's just hopeless. But I, um, yes, my forehand is definitely my problem.
0: Are you just a Fed? F- because we call them fed fans. You know, the Federer fans are like no other fans has ever been in tennis. But were you were you a tennis fan before Roger Federer or did oh, he just he took absolutely. it to Absolutely. Okay. Well, tell me how that in happened.
1: In fact, yeah, so well, I will say, and I, I don't think Roger knows this, but I didn't, when Roger was first on the scene, I, I really didn't like him that much because he won all the time and it was boring and I was like, oh, so he's like some perfect Swiss guy. So I was not into him, but later when he seemed, you know, when it was a like kind of like he became more human, that's when I really started liking him. But no, I actually, even growing up, my parents like to watch tennis. They like to play tennis. And I can remember my mom watching breakfast at Wimbledon Mm. and I, I, she taught me and my dad too. They taught me the scoring, which by the way, I have kids now. And when I try to explain the scoring, why is it so complicated? If you, you know, we all know it at this point so you never think about it again, but if you ever try to explain it to someone, it's really weird. Um, anyway, so I, I watched since I was a little kid and you know, I went to tennis camp and all that, but I'm not, as discussed, I'm not very good, but it's my favorite sport to watch. In fact, I would say it's my only sport to watch. And I love all kinds of different players. I usually root for the underdog a little bit.
0: Yeah, well, that would explain why you weren't a huge fan of Federer early on, because, like you said, he dominated everything. But now he's become a little, little bit more human with Nadal and catching him in overall grand slams and Djokovic, of course. Federer, by the way, Savannah, you, you may know this, is coming back from another knee injury. He's hoping to play the Australian Open, which normally starts mid January, but now has been pushed back to February 8th start. And the latest we hear from Switzerland, maybe you could find this, do a little digging for me because I know that's your specialty <laughs> um, It doesn't sound good for Roger to be able to play the Australian oh. Open the, the, the recoverys oh, not I' heard well. that yeah the recovery's not going as well as they would hope well you probably haven't heard it because you've been a little bit busy so I want to ask you about <laughs> that because it was right when I made the connection with you it was maybe a week or two before your now famous interview Town hall with President Trump and I remember one of someone at, M- at NBC said, well, we got a few things brewing, so Savannah might be a little busy. So little did I know that it was going to be this interview you did, which, by the way, uh, you did an unbelievable job. And obviously you've got a background I'm- in... Uh, You know, being more than just uh, the host, the the co-host of the Today Show, right? Your background in in studying legal issues and, and all that court TV where you got your start. So I, how did you prepare for that interview? Because I'm sure it came together pretty quickly, right? With the way that all went down.
1: It really did, and um, you know, it, it it was supposed to be. This all happened on the night that was supposed to be the second debate. But when the president got COVID, and then the debate commission, which is this nonpartisan, independent commission, that solely exists to put on debates every four years. And um, it decided to make this a virtual event, at which point President Trump said, I don't want to, I'm not going to do it. ABC scheduled a town hall with Joe Biden. Mm-hmm. NBC had just done a town hall with Joe Biden. So it was sort of, you know, we were going to ask Trump anyway. So that's kind of how it came together truly last minute. Um, so I only had... I would say two three days to prepare we were down in miami and it was also a viewer town hall so not only i knew i was going to do the first part and do an interview with him so i wrote the interview but i also you know we we sought out questions from voters and that was a whole piece of it that i you know haven't talked that much about but that was a huge part of it because you get all kinds of questions and they would just send them to me. And then I would look at to make sure they were diverse in terms of subject area area, that they were good questions, that they were diverse in terms of questioners politically, but also the demographically. So it was like a big puzzle to put together in a really short time.
0: Yeah. And that's obviously a lot more difficult and challenging than than just doing the one-on-one interview. So how did you balance that out? The, the fact that you had the questions <laughs> coming in and, and, you know, keeping the interview moving. And then as you so, aptly did sort of interrupting the president when he, you know, started saying some things that maybe weren't a hundred percent accurate, you were able to jump in. So what was it like to manage that whole puzzle?
1: Well, you know, it's, first of all, I really am a complete uh, believer in just preparation and over preparation. And so I had written out this interview, I'd done my research. I, when I, when I plan an interview, not only do I write the questions, I anticipate the answers mm-hmm. and i I kind of go over it in my head, and you know if you study enough of somebody what they say, you have to look at their transcripts, you look at what they've said, you look at um, news articles, you look at all these different things you you kind of have a good idea of what is in the range of responses for those kinds of questions and so i'm either designing my questions knowing there's going to be a follow-up knowing what the answer might be or sometimes you you i prepare by looking at old interviews because i'm looking for that sliver of something new that little nuance that you know that wasn't followed up on the last time the, the interviewee was asked about it. So I, that's kind of how I approach it. So I just bury myself with that. But I think, you know, in term, after, it was like being in, um, you know, like the, the bunker, you know, I literally was in this hotel room. I was so anxious because I knew it was a big deal. Mm-hmm. And it was two weeks before the election, you're interviewing the president. I was like subsisting on cashews from the mini bar and Diet Coke. <laughs> um, <laughs> and um, I, you know, I think this, when after all the kind of policy and the planning and all that stuff and the the substance of it i tried to just get my mind in the right place which was to be present to really listen to what was said and to use common sense and i think that's that's what i just tried to bring to it just common sense and you know when I, i have never watched it back i probably never will watch it back but when i think about what that night was the questions were pretty simple and straightforward and direct. You know, they weren't complicated or loaded. And a lot of times people ask long questions and then the person you're asking can dispute aspects of the, your, your frame and your setup. And I just tried to make it really, really simple. But the irony is, is to ask a simple question, you have to do a lot of work. Um, so that's kind of what it was. I was just sort of like, this is, I was just my mindset was just be on the side of facts and getting out facts. And that's what I tried to do.
0: Well, let me tell you something, Savannah Guthrie, because you may not watch that back, but I can tell you that uh, many journalism schools are going to be replaying that interview and the way you handled it. And, and, and I, I, I do my broadcasting, you know, in the little world of, of tennis for, for ESPN and, and I've spent many years doing that. And, and when people ask me, what I try to do is just as a, as a tennis commentator is something you just said. So I think I'm on the right track, which the number one thing that's most important is to listen, to listen to mm. what your fellow announcer or your, your, your subject that you're interviewing is doing. So that's something that you, you obviously just pointed out that you were able to do to listen, but also to be prepared to go in the direction that you want to go, but also be able to adjust to what you're hearing, because oftentimes you've got it scripted out, right? I mean, it, it drives me crazy if I'm watching someone doing an interview and they're just looking at their their what their next question is going to be without reacting to what the person just said.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's the greatest challenge. I, I always write out my interviews. I write out what I think is going to happen and what I want to happen in terms of, you know, the order of questions and the order of subjects. But once I actually get there, I almost never look down at my notes because I've looked at it so much. I've thought about it so much that it's, it's like lives within me and I know what's coming next and I know what the follow-ups are going to be. That's my, that's what all the heart you know, the, the days and days sitting in this lonely hotel room are not pleasant, mm-hmm. but what they Buy for you is the chance to be relaxed in the moment, so it's so funny the The best I felt the whole week was the minute I sat down because then it was no more anxiety and preparation about you know all the different things that could happen. It was just this let's just go if this is the time this is this is it. You just ask the questions, try to listen again, like be sincere, be present, try to channel that person at home i I think about it all the time on the Today show when I do interviews. I I think about my mom or, you know, just any regular person watching at home. What do they want to know? What are they going to be throwing a brick at the TV if I don't ask? (laughs) You know, that kind of thing. And I think like you can ask anything if you ask with preparation and integrity and sincerity. I mean, I know that there's lots of people that aren't happy with that presentation or what I did at the town hall. But I I think when I look at it, I know I, I didn't take any partisan position. I didn't, I didn't hold water for any, for his opponent, for Joe Biden. Those were fact-based questions, trying to elicit facts, and that was the best I could do. Well, you did
0: an unbelievable job, and obviously, as you said, you you know, when you sat in that chair, that's when you're most comfortable and confident because you know you've done your homework. I guess that's why you you finished number one when you took the Arizona bar exam, right, in the whole state of Arizona. (laughs) You, you, You finished number one. How the heck did you do that?
1: Well, that's that's the funniest thing because that just makes me a dork. It's a pass fail test, past, <laughs> you know. Like you know, you nobody's trying to get an A on the bar exam. I, but it does. It always makes me laugh when people bring it up because I think it does betray a certain aspect of my personality, which is, you know, maybe I overprepare, maybe I overdo it, not because I'm trying to get an A, I'm trying to not fail, you know, for me, like the biggest, uh, I would be mortified if something happened that I could have prepared for and I didn't prepare for. And I mean, I know it's like, maybe it's a stretch to compare it to tennis. And again, I'm terrible at tennis, but I think it's, if you've imagined all the different scenarios that can unfold when you have something big coming up, whether it's a game or a match or whether it's a big interview, if you've thought it out, envisioned planned in your mind, thought about how you would respond, you know, gamed every scenario out, it's much less frightening when you're in that moment because generally you've anticipated what ultimately does happen. And then you kind of have already thought about Mm -hmm. what is the response. I mean, I had to think about, you know, President Trump is obviously a colorful individual and there's all kinds of different reactions you might get. Sometimes he might be mad. Sometimes he, you know, might be cordial. There's all, and, and by the way, that's true of anybody you interview. They they all come at, from it in different ways. So I think by thinking through all those various scenarios and all those various reactions I might get, I was hopefully ready to, to take anything. But I also will say that I thought he was very respectful and answered the questions. And um, I, I was glad about that. Yeah,
0: well, you set it up well. And uh, again, you, you did an awesome job doing that and, and get a real insight into uh, how to how to do it well. Now, you did bring up earlier when we first started discussing uh, things, the, your interest in psych- the psychology of tennis, Savannah. So, tell, tell, so, so please, I, I divulge a little bit more. What, what, do, you, what do you mean by that?
1: May I, may I please get on the couch of Patrick <laughs> McEnroe, sports psychologist? Come on in. Come well, it's on just in. a yeah. funny thing. It's, I, you know, first of all, I'm really, and I'm not, I really can't play very well, but I like to play. But here's the thing. I've decided for myself that I'm never playing any matches, even against my husband, and maybe even especially against my husband, because it's so infuriating. Around the time that I was practicing for the Roger charity match, mm-hmm. I'm telling you, I was playing every day right. with a coach. And playing better than I've ever played, okay? Like, really just whipping those balls, doing my best. It's the only sport I can sort of do. I was really working hard and Mm -hmm. practicing. I go out to play with my husband, who never practices because, you know, he didn't have the time. (laughs) He's just like, he not set foot on the court in three months. He's He's not any better than I am. But I get so kind of worked up in the moment that of course i lost and i always lose to him and it makes me so mad i also have this weird habit patrick of hitting the ball straight to the person Mm -hmm. (laughs) like i can't (laughs) stop hitting easy shots he could be literally sitting down and respond to my shots he could lay down Smoke a cigarette and take a nap, and still get my shots because they're going right to him. Meanwhile, he's racing me all over the court. What's wrong with me?
0: Well, listen, you got to. I'll set up. We got to set up some targets. We can put you. We put you because I, I, <laughs> I, this happens to me a lot. And actually, this summer I taught more lessons to sort of people like you, like recreational type players that play that love to play that maybe took it up when they were adults. And and sure enough, they'll they'll analyze it maybe overanalyze it because they maybe don't have the skill level that they, like you have such an unbelievable brain and a skill level for what you do. Well, in tennis, you need to be able to do the things that you probably think should be easy. You actually need a skill level that might be difficult for you at this stage of your life to make, to, to find. Right. But then you have to break it down. And so I've had people that that I play with um, over this summer Giving them a lot of lessons and so on, and they just can't figure out why. Like I already, I know where the ball is going. Now I was a professional, of course. So your husband, I know, was not a professional player, but he's but you know, good, average, good, solid sort of club player. But it's all about levels. You know, when I played Andre Agassi at the at the center court at Wimbledon, I mean, I had no chance to win the match. <laughs> so for me, who I consider myself hey, relatively... the center well, court on Wimbledon. Well, that's that's it, amazing. But, well, that's what I'm saying. I consider myself relatively intelligent, and I'm thinking to myself, oh, my God, like there's absolutely nothing I can do to have a chance to win this match. So you have to sort of, you have to deal with that, and then you have to try to figure out, okay, how can I, Savannah Guthrie, just get a little bit better? Right, you you got to make it a bit yeah. more about yourself than about you, know, you, you. Your your darn husband of yours just beats you no matter what. It's like the one guy said to me when I was giving him a lesson. He really he's a and he's a good player, but he thinks that he can beat me. Like when we play a game, and, <laughs> and, and, and I let yeah, him no, I let can. him win a little bit once in a while. And so I finally I said to him, I said, listen, I said, there's no chance that you can ever beat me. It's not, So we, we shouldn't be thinking. And he looked at me like I was, like he, he just didn't believe it. I said, there's no chance. It's like me going to play with Roger Federer. There's no, no matter what I do, it's not going to happen. So we have to get you in this mindset, Savannah, of being the best that you can be on the tennis court."
1: Well, I yes, and I agree, cause it, and, and that's why I like to play against the backboard, but <laughs> I literally do like to play against the backboard, but I will just say, I hope this isn't boring for all your listeners, you can cut it out if it is, I work on my forehand, my mm-hmm. backhand I have more, it's more naturally, I just it just comes more naturally to me, my forehand, I worked on that more than anything, I must have hit 10,000 shots of that same forehand, and to this day, I cannot just get the rhythm. I have to, I'm literally doing the checklist in my head, like, okay, you know, just just start earlier or whatever, whatever the thing is that I'm working on that moment. Right. One simple thing was look at the ball. I think I was always looking where I was going to hit it. I didn't follow the ball all the way to where it actually hits the net. It sounds stupid, but that made a big difference for me, but I just can't, I can't get that muscle memory I want to get.
0: Savannah, you and I need to do some therapy. I mean, do a tennis lesson together. Okay, we're gonna we're gonna because I there's a lot to there's a lot going on here. I can tell you're you and I have some players like you that are strong-willed, very intelligent people, very successful, and they and it's almost like you're thinking a little bit too much. So we need to find a little flow for you on the tennis court. That's, okay. That'll be the goal. Now the, before I let I'm you into that. before I let you go I do want to ask you because I had David Gregory on um, uh, recently who's who uh, was awesome too and he's I love him. Yeah, he loves tennis, but I asked him and I want to ask you this cuz he gave me some great answers to this and I know you will too just about you know getting into journalism and then and then getting into sort of being a TV star, celebrity. I mean, that's what happens when you're co-hosting the Today Show and sort of finding that balance between, okay, you know, you've got to do your work as a real, as a true journalist, which you obviously proved for the countless time by doing your interview with Trump and others that you've done throughout your career. But while also being, hey, I got to kind of be like a celebrity, like a little bit of a star to be, on the today show to host meet the press, you know, which I, you, you filled in and did at times in the past as well. So can, can you talk to me a little bit about that balance of what that's like, that reality?
1: Well, you know, I mean, I think the, the, the truest answer is that the, the journalism has to come first. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, the, the, the I, I won't just, I guess at this point it would just be absurd if I said there wasn't any celebrity to this job because there is, you know, and now I can see that. I don't think of myself that way. So, you know, it's always like, I always just cringe a little because I'm like, ah, not me, but I get it. You know, it is, it is something we're on TV. We're in people's homes. People feel like they know you. I mean, I, and I actually, you know, I, I, I feel that way sometimes when I have a big interview like with Trump, or I had it with Biden earlier this year. And, um, you know, there are moments where you know that the question you ask is not going to be popular. And you know that, at least in politics, about half, half the people watching are going to be really mad at you. And that's not pleasant. I mean, I'm not... Some people are really enjoy confrontation. Mm -hmm. Some people in this business I know really love it and relish those moments. I am not one of them. I like to get along. I like to laugh. I like to have fun, but it's, it's my, my kind of fear and anxiety about confrontation is outweighed by my desire and my feeling of obligation. Like this, there Mm -hmm. are questions that ought to be answered and should be answered. And if it costs me popularity or it costs me what, People, you know, the the appeal I might have, then that is that that is a price I have to pay. You have to spend that on something, and you, you better spend it on something worthy. So for me, I really just try to focus on on the news and the job. I love. I mean, obviously, I love news. I I went to law school, so I really look at. Um, I think that kind of affects how I look at the news and I look at interviews. I really analyze it. I I I'm in a weird way. I'm kind of dispassionate about the topics, I just am interested in what are the arguments on each side. I look at it more intellectually, like Mm -hmm. that's interesting. These, these advocates will say X, Y, and Z, but on the other side, these X, you know, A, B, and C is the counter argument. And that's kind of how I look at it. And um, so that really is a good North star for me. And as for all the other stuff, which is fun, I just try not to let it in. I mean, I don't, I just, it's, doesn't it's It's fun to be on t v and it's fun to get to know you, Patrick. I mean, I can't believe I'm talking to you, but it's like <laughs> I know that right. that's not reality until we have our tennis lesson and we become buddies. then okay, then it'll be reality, but I try to just hold it at arm's length so that um I just try to remember who I am. you know, I grew up in Tucson, Arizona, <laughs> I have my family and my friends, and I'm the same person I always was and I guess that's how that's kind of how I approach it. Well, listen, your
0: reality is about to happen, okay? Because you and I are getting on the tennis court. Bring your husband if you want, bring your kids. I know you have two kids, and this is a perfect time because I know, you know, you work your butt off in the morning we said we're going to do this interview after you're done working, doing the Today Show. We've done it in that time frame. And now I, I know you, you probably have a little window where you get a little time before you get to pick up your kids from school. So you come up exactly. to walk to the McEnroe Academy at Randall's Island, and you, we will get it on. Okay, we will get it on on I'm the court. I'm going to. You. So you, you let me know anytime You've got free lessons With me for doing my podcast. I very much appreciate you putting the time aside to do it. I know it's been crazy, hectic time for you. I wish you and your family an awesome holiday season and congrats on all your great work, especially these last few months. Uh,
1: Right back at you. It's really, really a pleasure. Thank you so much, and I'll see you on the court. I really will. See
0: you on the court. (laughs) The great Savannah Guthrie, everybody. Holding Court with Patrick McEnroe is powered by Mudhouse Media. I'm telling you, whenever I end up going back on the road, which I hope is relatively soon, but probably won't be for this year's Australian Open, I can tell you, whenever I head back on the road to travel, my pillow is coming with me. It's totally changed the way I sleep. Totally. I mean, I'm just so much more comfortable. I don't know what it is getting a little older. I feel like I need more sleep. I had COVID back in March. I feel like I've been sleeping like nine, 10 hours a night. But I'll tell you, since I got my pillow and thanks to my friends there for supporting this podcast and sending me the stuff, absolutely changed my life. You got to try it. My pillow. There's an absolute plethora of stuff you can order on the site. Okay, all different my pillow products. I got the mattress top. I got, as I said, some of the towels, the pillows are off the charts. If you got a pet, you'll love that too. So here's the number to call, 800-875-1023. That's 800-875-1023. And use the promo code COURT.